0: We're walking through Peter's second letter uh, to the churches of Asia, Asia Minor. And for those of you who are not familiar with the Bible, you want to know that Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples. Uh, his original name was Simon, but Jesus re-nicknamed him Peter, meaning rock. Now, Peter's first letter encouraged persecuted followers of Jesus living in the churches of Asia Minor to persevere Uh, by trusting in Jesus' promises. God's people have always been misunderstood from from the beginning of time. They're a misunderstood minority who live under the rule of a different king. And Peter reminds them that, that suffering and persecution gives them, as followers of Christ, a unique opportunity to demonstrate the sacrificial love and generous grace of Jesus Christ. Now, in the second letter that Peter writes, the one that we're looking at this evening and we'll be walking through for the next couple weeks, Peter's second letter acts as his farewell speech. Peter realizes he doesn't have long to live, and he wants his final exhortation to be preserved in writing for future generations. And in chapter 1, Peter reminds the churches that through Jesus, God has granted them Divine power to become participants in the divine nature. And this means two things, as we've talked about over the past couple of weeks. First, through Jesus, they have escaped worldly corruptions and the sinful flesh. But second, through Jesus, they have begun a lifelong process of growing in godliness. And Peter lists seven traits that illustrate what it means to participate in the divine nature. It means to grow in virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and add to that godliness and brotherly affection. It means to become effective and fruitful in Christ. It means confirming your calling and election. It means being richly provided entrance into Christ's kingdoms. In other words... Being granted divine power to participate in the divine nature means becoming like Jesus and thus being, quote, made fit for his eternal kingdom. God doesn't just bring us into the kingdom, but he prepares us and qualifies us for it so that we are made fit for it. So next in chapter 1, Peter issues warnings against corrupt teachers and encourages the believers to hold fast to their hope in Jesus Christ and the new creation that God will bring through him. And at the end of chapter 1, he addresses the first objection of these false teachers, which is that the disciples had made it all up, all this stuff about Jesus being risen from the dead. In other words, that the, the Gospels were just a cleverly invented myth. And Peter responds saying, no, actually, we were eyewitnesses to all that happened, to his miracles. We were there when, tr- when Jesus was transformed in glory on the holy mountain and heard the voice of God from heaven declare, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So now this brings us to where we will dive in this evening, chapter 2, where Peter is going to deal with the second threat of these false teachers, And that second thread is that these teachers deny that there will ever be a final reckoning for the choices that people make. And this this denial conveniently enables them to justify their greed and lust. And Peter responds to these false teachers in the first 10 verses of chapter 2. So follow along as I read. But the false prophets And their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of glory, uh, gloomy darkness, to be kept until judgment, and if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and who despise authority. So how does Peter respond to these false teachers who are arguing that there will be no final reckoning for sin? And he does this... By first, exposing the false teacher that they are liars. Second, by exposing their false teaching that it's full of lies. And third, he provides hope for those who trust what is, what is true and refuse to let go of truth. So first, let's walk through this. Peter exposes the teachers themselves as liars. And he says, listen, false teachers are nothing new. Verse 1, false prophets have arisen among the people throughout time, throughout the Old Testament. False prophets were actually common. They were often in the majority because they told people things that they wanted to hear, things that tickled their ears, things that went along with all of the belief systems and idols of the day. So don't be surprised when they arise among you, he says. In fact, in verse 1, he says, there will be false teachers among you. So don't be naive and surprised. False teachers are nothing new. And notice, he says, how these false teachers act. He says, they're secretive, verse 1. They they secretly uh, bring in destructive heresies. And they're sensual, verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality. And so he says, don't don't be captivated by their lusts because they blaspheme the way of truth. I don't know about you, but kind of growing up, I assumed that, that false teachers would be like the creepy-looking people hiding in corners, the ones that would scare little children and were unkempt. But that's not at all how the false teachers are described here in the passage. They're, they're described as either, rather winsome and rather seductive. And they know exactly what to appeal to, to get people's captivations. And we run into them all of the time. For those of you who are who are younger, beware that, that false teachers can be the most winsome person in the room. They can have the best jokes. They can be the best dressed. But what are they appealing to? Are they appealing to God's truth and his word? Are they appealing to things that that sparkle and glitter that are kind of plasticky and grab your attention. See, false teachers captivate us with seductive ways. And he says, don't be captivated by them. And next, he says, don't be fooled by them either because because they're greedy and they exploit exploit others with false words in verse 3. So don't let them fool you And he says their their condemnation is not idle. In other words, their destruction is not asleep. That that these false teachers are sort of like used car salesmen. They don't really believe in what they're selling. They just want to make a profit off of you. They want to exploit you. They want to get something out of you. We saw this very clearly when I read the call to worship as we compared... Wisdom and folly. And in the Proverbs, Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly are both calling out to the simple. And Lady Wisdom calls out and says, you must leave something behind to enjoy what I have. Well, what does she have? Well, she, first of all, has a mansion. She has a house with seven pillars. And she has a feast. And what's at her feast? Her feast is mixed wine and marinated meats It is a feast of feasts. It's a feast fit for kings. But there's this other woman, Lady Folly. and She sits at the door, and she calls out too. And she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is delicious. But if you take time to think about it, bread and water, mixed wine and marinated meat, Which is truly better? And false teachers have already succumbed to God's judgment. The condemnation is not idle, meaning they're selling you, they're hawking you goods that they know is bread and water. Because that's the way God has designed the world. And... Gang, particularly the young, there's lots of you who are watching videos and you're watching YouTube and they, they picture wealth and success and sexuality in ways that look better than what God has for you. But if we listen to God's word, we'll see through those lies that those selling the goods don't even believe in what they're selling. The house of brothels is a stinking mess. It is dirty and filthy and full of all kinds of disappointment and pain. It cannot be compared to the true love that God has designed for you to have as a man and a woman living in covenant. That's just an example. And so these false teachers, they'll try to seduce you with sensual ways and contrary to what they may claim, they already are suffering from their choices. So don't let them fool you. Don't be fooled. They mean to exploit you with false words. Now, having exposed the false teachers, Peter goes on to expose their false teaching, which is, well, there'll never be a final reckoning for the people choices, uh, for the choices people make. And Peter exposes their teaching as false, By by comparing it to all of biblical history. And he starts with the angels to show that all moral beings, human or not, will face a day of reckoning and judgment. Verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, right? If even the angels are held accountable, privileged as they are, and let's face it, sometimes privileged people get certain breaks, but not with God. So why would you assume humans would get off scot-free? The answer is they won't. And in verse 5, he continues by showing that humanity has already faced Many days of God's reckoning. Consider the flood when the whole world turned from God. In Genesis 6, it says that God saw the wickedness of man and that it was great on the earth and that every intention of his thoughts in his heart was only evil continually. And so what did God do? Well, he brought a day of reckoning, A day of reckoning among all humanity, saying, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, of course, afterwards, God promised never to flood the entire world again, but this does not mean that there will be no more days of reckoning. And so Peter goes on to mention Sodom and Gomorrah, which is another day of reckoning in verses 6 through 8. See, instead of a day of reckoning for the whole world with judgment by water, God brought a day of reckoning upon a whole city with judgment by fire. In other words, Peter is exposing their lies, the content of their teaching. And and listen, even fools can occasionally say things that are true, right? A broken watch is correct two times a day. But he says, this idea that God doesn't care how you live, this deistic idea that he's too concerned with great things, and as long as you're not hurting each other, go do whatever you want. I'm not going to hold you accountable. That idea is not even right accidentally twice a day. It's wrong through and through. God will bring a day of reckoning. Of course he will. He's done it throughout history, so why wouldn't he do it in the future? The real question is, how can anyone survive such such a day? And this brings us to our third point. Peter provides the hope for those who hold fast to the truth. Notice that for every day of reckoning, God provides a way of escape. With the flood, he preserved Noah and seven others. With the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, he preserved Lot. For as verse 8 clarifies, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. What does this mean? To clarify what it means to hold fast to the truth, because I think we often have a misunderstanding of what that actually looks like, we need to compare Noah and Lot. Now, both are mentioned in this passage. It took Noah 100 years to build the ark. While the others were boasting uh, in their perversions, doing whatever they wanted with whoever they wanted, whenever they wanted, believing God was either non-existent or that he was uh, too far removed from the situation or indifferent to their behaviors, while all that was going on, Noah was building the ark for 100 years. And he was building a boat on dry land and prophesying about God's coming judgment. Now you can imagine the flack that Noah took. You can imagine how out of step Noah looked to the culture. Noah appeared as a herald that proclaimed God's righteousness among cynics that mocked him every day. Yet Noah held fast to the truth for a hundred years despite being surrounded by scoffers. And remember, he didn't choose to be surrounded by hedonistic sinners. It was unavoidable. That's who everybody was. And Noah was saved out of that unavoidable situation. But then there's Lot, the nephew of Abraham. And he's saved out of what is most likely an avoidable situation. See, Lot, if you remember, he arrived with Abraham in the promised land. But when the herds of sheep and goats grew too large to be supported by the land, Abraham advised that they separate and go their separate ways. So Abraham offered Lot the first choice of land. And instead of deferring to the elder Abraham, Lot chose the best part of the land, the lush and green valley of the Jordan. And Abraham went in the opposite direction and inhabited the hill country of Canaan. And in Genesis thirteen, verses twelve and thirteen, it says that Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now with I don't want to get into the weeds, right? Several of Lot's decisions though, and this is my main point, seems suspiciously self serving. And it's hard to imagine that Lot didn't have another choice. He didn't have to live in Sodom. And if you didn't know it already, if you read the full story, Abraham had already saved Lot out of captivity captivity earlier when the kings of Sodom and the king of uh, Gomorrah were overrun by King uh, Chetaloamar and his allies. So... So how do we square, here's my question, how do we square the Genesis account, Genesis account with Second Peter's account? For Peter says in verses 7 through 9, and if God rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. How do we make sense of this as you read the story of Genesis and you read the interpretation that Peter gives? Well, despite all Sodom's wickedness, it does seem clear both in Genesis and in 2 Peter that Lot was distressed by living among the wicked in Sodom. What is less clear is why he remained there so long. I mean, he was rescued from Sodom by the skin of his teeth. And only after the angels literally seized him and his wife and his daughters by the hand and brought him out. You can read it in Genesis 19, 16. They had to seize him and carry him out. Left to himself, Lot would have lingered most likely and perished. In fact, his wife perished because she looked back. So what's the point? Well here's the point. Biblical salvation is always by grace through faith and not by works that no man should boast. And Lot is the perfect example of this. While Lot didn't personally engage in the same wicked and sensational behaviors as those living in Sodom, he was content to dwell among them. It seems much of the torment That his righteous soul endured over the lawless deeds he saw and heard was avoidable and self-induced because he chose to linger there. Unlike Noah, he had places he could have gone. Abraham made other choices and spared himself much of the same torment. So how does this all apply? I want to mention two ways. First, we must always trust God to save. But that doesn't mean we should test him. The moral of Lot's story is not, I am righteous enough to be saved as long as I look but don't touch. Right? That's the biggest lie I often hear wives try to justify their husband's behavior. You can play with pornography. Look, just don't touch. It's not a good thing in marriage. It's not a good thing in relationships. Or or to say that I can live as I choose As long as I don't cross the line of debauchery. In other words, I just need to be righteous enough. That's not the moral of the story. The moral of Lot's story is even if you've tormented your soul by flirting with sin again and again, God's hand is never too short to rescue you. However, don't be a fool. Don't torment your soul that way. It's foolish and dangerous. God may have mercy on your soul and take you by the hand and drag you out, but he doesn't need to. And remember, while Lot was delivered, his wife perished. And his daughter's sense of righteousness was certainly defiled as the rest of the story reveals as it progresses. So, trust God to save you. Despite your folly, But do not test the Lord your God. Jesus said it clearly. You shall not test the Lord your God. Second, trust God, not the strength of your resolve. Peter's whole argument is that there's a day of reckoning coming when God will judge people according to the choices they make. He will hold you accountable for your sin. And the false teachers undermine this salvation by saying, there's no day of reckoning. Stop being so uptight. Just eat, drink, be merry. Do as you please, as long as you're not violent toward others. And while we must reject such an arrogant dismissal of God's righteous judgment, we must also reject an arrogant definition of self-reliance when it comes to faith and religion. See, Noah and Lot were considered righteous for one reason and one reason only, because they respected God's justice and his mercy. In other words, they feared God enough to believe what he said about the day of reckoning and quake before him. And they trusted God enough to receive the only salvation he offered them. God offered Noah a boat. He took it, though it seemed like folly to everyone else. And God offered Lot a firm hand and a command to never look back. And he trusted and lived. Noah had a lot of resolve for a hundred years and he was saved. Lot, ah, mm, seems like he had less resolve and yet he was still saved. How much resolve do you need to be saved? Just enough to take God at his word and surrender to him. Just enough to to shift your faith from yourself or from anything else to him. I've shared this illustration before, but I think it's appropriate. We are saved not because of the strength of our faith being powerful. We are saved because the object of our faith is powerful and trustworthy. When I was taking our kids to uh, Disney World the first time, my son Jack was sitting in the hangar at BWI Airport, and he looked out at this plane that was made of metal and really heavy and awkwardly placed on three wheels. And he said, Dad, do you think it's going to work? And he didn't have to understand all the dynamics, you know, of, of uh, jet engine compulsion or aerodynamics, right? He just had to trust Dad enough to get on the plane. And he knew he would be delivered to the greatest place on earth where dreams come true. And there may have been another lady. Actually, there is a lady I know. We would always tease her because she was an Italian lady and she was very loud about any story she told. And she hated flying and for 10 years she wouldn't fly. And then finally she decided after lots of counseling and discipleship, like, I think this is a step of trusting God. And she got on that plane and she made it a miserable experience for everyone else. Jess, are you sure? I'm so scared. And she's crying and being very loud and obnoxious. Which of the two were saved, my son or her? Both. Why? Because one had more faith than the other? No. (laughs) One had stronger faith? No. They both just got on the plane. And it's the same with our Christian faith. Noah is like the guy who just, he had lots of resolve... Lot, I'm not sure you can make that argument, but he placed his faith in the Word of God and was saved. So in summary, Peter provides hope to those who hold fast to the truth. The truth of God's justice and His coming judgment, the truth of His mercy and His power deliver to deliver. If that was true for Noah and Lot, Peter argues, how much true is it for us as Christians? False prophets are undermining God's justice by saying God doesn't care how you live. He's a God of love. He accepts whatever you do. If that were true, then why did Jesus come and die such a grueling death on a cross? God cares a lot about what you've done. He cares a lot about how you live. He must condemn all sin for it is a deadly cancer that destroys everything in his good creation. And there is a day of reckoning for all sinners. As with Noah and Lot, there's only one way of deliverance. And so let Jesus take you by the hand like the angels did with Lot and deliver you from the fire of God's wrath. Or like Noah, hide yourself in Jesus like Noah hid in the ark and you will be delivered from the flood of God's wrath and you'll be cleansed and renewed for a new creation. And whatever you do, reject false teachers that say God doesn't care what you do or how you live. He's a God of love who just accepts you and wants you to feel good about yourself. Beware of false teachers who seek to exploit you and make you comfortable in your sins. Don't fall under their spells like Lot's wife who looked back longingly for the wicked city that she didn't want to leave behind instead of holding fast to the hands of her angelic deliverer she is like those that peter warns about in ver, uh, in uh, in chapter two those who deny the master who who bought them meaning jesus christ and they brought swift destruction upon themselves and so peter provides hope for all those who hold fast to the gospel of jesus christ they're not enchanted by the lies of false teachers that dismiss god's justice nor are they disenchanted Because they believe in the gospel, they've come to grips that no matter how sinful and foolish they have been, they trust in God's mercy, not their self-righteousness, for their rescue and their salvation. And so Peter exposes the false teachers as liars. He exposes their teaching as lies and compares it saying God always acts this way in history. And then he provides hope for deliverance. That those who trust in what's true shall be rescued and saved if they hold fast and don't let go. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word. Lord, this simple message is clear in your word. It is profound and true. And we pray that you would plant it deeply within our hearts. That we would learn to trust you and your promises. Help us learn to discern between truth and lies, between teachers that say things just to please us versus teachers who say true things because they seek to represent you. Father, I pray for any here who uh, need to hear your word, that they would listen to the truth of it and, and cling to it. Lord, if there are false teachers in their lives that are trying to get them to believe other things, we pray that they would take warning. We pray that they would turn back to you and evaluate all things by your standards, by what you have said in your word. We pray this so that we might know your glory, your justice, and your mercy, and that we might be partakers of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.